0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians, Chapter 5. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you, everyone who helped with music today. I'm very grateful for the countless hours that you have all spent pursuing music and practicing and preparing to lead us in worship today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, follow as I read, beginning at verse 1, ending with verse 10. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, immortality. Now, it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would rather to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that's evil kind of bad. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would illuminate your word, the words you have communicated about life and death and immortality through your apostle. I pray, Father, that you would give us comfort where we need to be comforted. I pray that you would challenge us to repentance where we need to repent. I pray, Father, that you would prepare us with these words for the appointment that we all keep. The Scriptures say it's appointed unto men, once to die and after this the judgment. Father, if there are those present here who have not received Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would gather them into your eternal kingdom, that we might be together with them for all eternity. For those who are present, who are believers, and need to do work with the risen Lord, as his spirit examines their hearts on this last Sunday of this particular year of worship, we pray, Father, that you would do the work in them that needs to be done that you would bring them to true repentance, which is not only a change of mind about our sin, but a change of our behavior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As December draws to a close, it's not uncommon for people to look back over their lives lived in the preceding year, evaluate what they've done, and then vow to make some changes. We probably all have made New Year's resolutions at one time or another. On this last Sunday of 2021, it's fitting for us to consider an appointment we each have to face, to evaluate our current level of preparedness for that appointment, and to make adjustments to our lives if we need to make adjustments in light of this appointment. And the appointment, as I mentioned in my prayer, is death. Unless Jesus returns during your lifetime, you will die. And the time of your death is generally quite unpredictable. I have performed funerals for babies who never lived outside their mother's womb. I have performed funerals for babies that did. I have buried teenagers and 20-somethings people in the prime of life. I buried enough people to fill this building here today with people who had lived their allotted three-score year and ten, the norm that God gives us according to the Scripture. And I buried people that were over a hundred years of age. I buried people who died with no warning. Years ago, we had members of our church whose son was driving on the Western Pennsylvania Turnpike in the snow, a tractor trailer flipped over the divider and killed this 20-something, young 20-something, and his fiance instantly, I have buried lots of people who went through the valley of the shadow of death over some period of time that gave them opportunity to think about death and to prepare for it. Part of the preparation for death is to know what takes place when we flatline, when there's no brain activity and we die. It's amazing, however, how little people know about death. As you can imagine, I have attended so many funerals in my life that I can't begin to tell you how many. And in those funerals, when people are given opportunity to talk, even some, no doubt, who are Christians, I hear incredible things, things like this. Uncle Joe is enjoying all the food now that he couldn't enjoy at the end of his life as he was getting ready to step out of this life. Mary is once again dancing like no one is watching. Dad is golfing on courses that far exceed the beauty of Pebble Beach and old St. Andrews. And Mom is here with us. I can feel her presence. Well, what is the current heaven really like? If each of us needs to prepare for what we will experience, Jesus doesn't come, what is it like? Explaining what happens at death, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 6, and I hope you have your text before you were going to take it apart, unpack it. We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In 5.8 he says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now you notice Lord in those situations is capital L, small O-R-D. When it's written like that in a context like this, it means the reference is to Jesus himself. Now, in some of his writings, Paul talks about believers who sleep in Jesus. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 15 today for your homework, which would be a really good thing to do, you will see that Paul refers several times to believers sleeping in Jesus. He does that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But that figure of speech refers to the bodies of those who have died. Paul's teaching and the teaching of all of Scripture is that at death, the human soul lives on. It doesn't go to sleep. This is true for believers, but remember, it's also true for unbelievers, and I think I'm going to be able to show you that in a little bit. In our text, Paul says, for those who believe to be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord at least as far as physical proximity is concerned. So you could be in close relationship with the Lord spiritually, but physically at least, when you're in these bodies, you're away from the Lord. But then he says to be away from the body at death is to be immediately present with Jesus in the place where Jesus dwells. Now I'd like you to think back to the believing Jewish thief who hung next to Jesus on his cross, Luke 23, 38 through 43. It is likely that as a child, that Jewish little boy was taught about the Messiah who would come. As he hung on his cross, listening to the crowd and listening to Jesus' response to the crowd, As he studied the inscription over Jesus' head, this is the king of the Jews, what did he do? He acknowledged his sin. He believed that Jesus was the sinless one. And in faith, he cried out to Jesus, Jesus, which means Savior, of course, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now only with the eye of faith could that thief, looking at Jesus hanging helpless and bloodied on a cross between earth and sky, perceive him to be the Old Testament promised Messiah who will usher in a kingdom, the Messiah of the Old Testament prophets. But based on his faith, Jesus answers the dying thief, and he says, I tell you the truth Today you will be with me in paradise. Now we know where Jesus' soul, his spirit went between death and resurrection, don't we? When Jesus' atoning work was done, when he had died for the sins of everyone who had been given to him by the Father to die for, we know that Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What happened to Jesus' body? It was taken down from the cross, was put in a tomb of a rich man where no one had ever been placed. The bodies of the two thieves crucified with Jesus were no doubt taken and burned on the garbage dump of Jerusalem. But listen to this. It's beautiful. The souls of Savior and saved criminal were together with the Father in heaven awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. Now, Jesus got his quickly, didn't he, in three days. The believing thief is still waiting for his, but Jesus and the repentant thief are together in heaven today. Our deceased loved ones aren't eating, dancing, golfing, and doing things that require bodies in order to do. They aren't hanging out here with us. The believing dead are consciously present in their spirits with God the Father, God the Son, God the Blessed, Holy Spirit. The believing thief hearing Jesus' promise would have understood the promise in that way. Soul sleep, unconsciousness between death and resurrection is taught by some denominations, actually Christian denominations, It's taught by a number of false sects, but it would have made no sense at all to the thief on the cross who believed in Jesus and repented of his sin and heard Jesus' promise. Our deceased believing loved ones are in heavenly bliss, awaiting the event that is the real goal of Christian faith and the ultimate purpose for which Jesus died and rose again. And you know what that event is, it's the reunification of souls and bodies when Jesus returns to earth. When he comes to fix everything that was broken because of the fall, Adam's sin, this phase of heaven where they are now, what they're enjoying now in their spirits, is called by theologians the intermediate state as opposed to the final heaven, which is called the final state. Let's look at why this current heaven is hard to grasp. I believe it is. The great theologian Madonna Ciccone expressed in a 1984 hit song, one of the reasons we have problems envisioning the period between our deaths and resurrection. That great theologian said, we are living in a material world and I'm a material girl. Anybody gonna laugh? As material creatures living in a material world, it is most difficult for us to conceive of living lives as spirits in the presence of tens of thousands times tens of thousands angelic spirit creatures. It's hard for us to comprehend living with the spirits of everyone who has died in Jesus from the beginning of time and living with Jesus in his resurrected body, which is material. So you have all this immaterial, all these spirits, but Jesus is in a material body because in Luke 24, 39, he said a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Come and see, touch me. Our difficulty with grasping life after death, but before resurrection, is compounded by a second factor. Without bodies, we cease to be what God created us to be, that is, complete persons consisting of a material body and an eternal soul. Think back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We read there that the Lord God formed the man from the dust to the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In death, your soul leaves your body, and your essential nature as a man or woman is destroyed for a time. We find this unnatural state hard to envision, quite undesirable, most of us, if we're in good health and enjoying life, and to be avoided. I can wrap my mind around the idea of life lived in my resurrected body on an earth that has been stripped of all the effects of the fall and of sin, restored to God's original design, I can wrap my mind around the idea of life in a body, enjoying fields and farms and houses and villages and cities and food and parties and worship and all kinds of non-sinful things that we do here in bodies. And if they don't take the keys away from me this session, maybe I'll preach about that next time I preach, what the resurrection is like and what heaven is like after resurrection. I struggle, however, with the nature of the current heaven. I unequivocally believe in all that's said about it because I believe every word of scripture. I believe that to enter it, Hebrews 12, through 24, is to come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to God the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. But the current heaven is a world of immaterial spirits, and I'm a material guy who's only ever lived in a material world. So that makes it Paul was not thrilled with the prospect of the intermediate state either. I don't believe from our text. In 5, 1 through 3, the apostle writes, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Why? Why does he crave resurrection? Because when we are clothed, we will not found to be naked to be without a body. Five one, Paul compares our current bodies to tents. Isn't that a fit analogy, tents? Tents are very temporary shelters. What a great analogy. Around 40 years of age, people begin to realize how temporary our body is as a building for our eternal souls. Around 40, we start to notice the wear and tear that the years have taken upon our earthly bodies. Psychologists tell us that people think very little of death until they're 40, and then they begin to think about the possibility. Not all the time, but they begin to think about it. Paul is convinced by revelation from God in 5.1 that when our tent is destroyed in death, we are not. And that at some point after our death, the fragile tent that is our earthly body is replaced with a permanent, indestructible, Paul's words, eternal house that God gives us. One not made with human hands, one, Not made with human hands, as Bibles speak, for something that's heavenly or eternal as opposed to earthly things which are always temporary. You can see the use of that in Acts 7.48 and Hebrews 9.24. The question posed by One that you should be asking is what is that eternal house, the building from God of which Paul writes? Three possibilities. The building from God, eternal in the heavens, is a temporary body that God gives to people as soon as they die, but they exchange it for their resurrection body when Jesus comes back. Second view. The building that's eternal in the heavens, our house in the heavens, refers to heaven itself. So you die, you go to be with all the spirits in heaven, and that's what Paul's talking about, heaven itself. The third possibility is the building from God, an eternal house in the heavens, of which he writes, is the resurrection body received at Jesus' return. Now, I think it's very easy to dismiss the number one view, the temporary body view. Paul's building from God designed to hold our souls when our tent we live in now dies is said to be an eternal house. While everything in heaven can be said in a sense to be eternal, it doesn't seem like it makes good sense of what Paul's saying to write that you're getting an eternal house that's not really eternal, that's temporary until you get your eternal house. A more serious problem with that view is that's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Like there's nowhere in Scripture where it says we get this temporary house. And we never build our doctrine on one verse of Scripture, especially one that's subject to various interpretations. Well, view two is plausible that the building is heaven itself, I think three is better, and I've become convinced of this, and I've I've struggled with this text for years. I believe the apostle is looking beyond the intermediate state to Jesus' glorious return, the destruction of sin and its effect on the creation, to life lived in a resurrected body on a renewed earth. Now think of the context, the overall context here, and it helps you get there. The Corinthian church, as you know, struggled to believe in a bodily resurrection for anybody except the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 was written to defend the doctrine that our bodies rise to, like Jesus. In it, Paul speaks in detail about these bodies being sown in the dirt and being raised in immortality. Sown in mortality, raised to immortality at Christ's second coming. What he didn't address in 1 Corinthians 15 was the question of what happens to people between their death and the resurrection. What happens between the sowing and reaping? I believe in this passage, he does that. He fills in the gaps so that the Corinthians have the full plan. They might have written him and asked him about this period, and he answers. Another reason for believing the building from God, the eternal house in heaven, is our resurrected body is that it is not likely that Paul would switch his metaphor and the meaning of his metaphor in the middle of a sentence. So everyone agrees the earthly tent in which we live is this house, this body lived in on earth. It would be unnatural for those who are reading the letter, for Paul writing the letter, to think the eternal house in heaven is um, anything but our body raised for life on a new earth. They just wouldn't get temporary body out of it. This body dies and is buried, resurrection, new body. The other thing that convinces me of this, and I didn't have time to say this in the first service, when you read through to the end of what I read, context is everything when you're interpreting scripture, it's just everything. Paul says in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, see he's looking beyond this stage, he's looking to resurrection. We stand in judgment, the last day, the judgment day comes after resurrection. Again, I think Paul is looking to the end of this present world, the completion of salvation experienced in resurrected bodies. Think about Paul and what he's writing here and what he's going through. In 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses eight through 11, he touches upon the aches, the pains, the stresses, He's experiencing as a much-battered missionary in the sixth decade of his life. He's got some age on him. He's been around the block. He has aches and pains, and he's experienced all kinds of stress, he says. He feels in his body, his tent, which is being destroyed, what's going on, all of this. And so he writes, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly body all of creation groans because of Adam's sin. Romans 5:12 we read sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And death came to all because all sinned in Adam that is. In Romans 8:22 and 23 we read the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so but we also groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons and daughters, what is that? The redemption of our bodies. Aging, illness, pain, want, relational struggles, crime, sorrow, death, grief for all of creation have as their original source man's sin. In the completion of Christ's saving work at the resurrection of the dead, Everything that's been broken by sin gets fixed. Paul longs for completed redemption when his tent that is coming apart will be replaced with one that never will. But what I don't think he longs for is the intermediate state. His longings are anchored further offshore. Five, two through three, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. His strong preference is not just to be a spirit in the intermediate state. His strong preference is to get his resurrected body. He views the intermediate state as being naked, being without a body, without the resurrected one, without the current, without the resurrected. His longing is for that resurrected body. In five four in the English Standard Version, That longing is reinforced, for while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in eternal life. Paul longs for what Christians of every age long for, and I hope you're longing for this. I am. That is to be alive when Jesus returns, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and to be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, from perishable to imperishable. He longs to bypass death altogether. I don't think there's anything wrong with that by being alive for the transformation of his earthly body at Jesus' return. And that can happen any time. It could happen during this service. Death is unnatural. Death is the enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, we're told that. Separated from our bodies, we are not what God designed us to be. We are only able to express ourselves fully when our souls inhabit our bodies. I think we recoil at the thought of this separation, and I don't believe it's unspiritual. I don't believe you're sinning if you don't delight in the ideas of death, dying, and and being separated from the body that makes you a whole person. God created us for life lived in bodies, either these or ultimately our eternal ones. That's the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5. We do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, Now, it is God who made us for this very purpose. We were made to be bodies and soul. Now, while separation of the body and soul is not something we long for, we know without a doubt that to die before Christ's return is to continue to experience, actually to experience in ways we can't hear, the love of God. Romans 8, 39, nothing, death cannot separate us from God's love. It is to be immediately present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And Paul said in Philippians one twenty one and following that to die is gain, that it's better by far than living here in our mortal bodies. Now remember, those statements come from a man who actually was taken up into heaven, we are told in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. The life that Paul witnessed in um, the current phase of heaven, when he was taken up, was so amazing that he returned conflicted. Conflicted between a strong desire to be there and his perceived need to continue to minister to God's people here, Philippians one23 to 25. Paul expresses basically the same feeling in the text you have before you in 2 Corinthians 5 8, when he says we would prefer to be away from the body And to be at home with the Lord. Now, while it's a preferred state to be with the Lord in the intermediate heaven, there's not a whole lot that we're told about it. Let me run through some of the things that I think Scripture talks about with regard to what your loved ones are enjoying now and what you'll enjoy if you step out into eternity. The place where our souls go immediately at death is called paradise. It's called that repeatedly in the New Testament. Paradise uh, is used in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament for the Garden of Eden. So the people translating thought, you know, it's the Garden of Eden. This is what the word means. The Garden of Eden was a place of absolute perfection, freedom from everything bad, fulfillment of every human desire, and perfect fellowship with God. That's not too bad, is it? Our fellowship with Jesus in the intermediate state will be far closer and richer than anything possible here. The higher level of intimacy is communicated by contrasting the phrases in your text, at home with the Lord. That's talking about intimacy. Contrasting that with away from the Lord, which is where we are now. We will know others, I believe, in Luke 6... 16:9 If you invest here in the kingdom of God, Luke 16:9 says that when you get to heaven there're going to be people who thank you for the investment you made here that got them there. I think we will remember the experiences that we have here on earth, Matthew 7:22, 25, 37, 40, Luke 16:9 and following. But since grief, regrets, and tears have no place in heaven, Revelation 21.4, somehow our sins, our missed opportunities um, here are eclipsed by the glory of heaven. So we're not there grieving over um, things that are past. We will be able to communicate, I believe, all through the book of the Revelation in the intermediate state. There are angels that are communicating. There are spirits of just people made perfect, that are communicating, they're singing, they're praising God. I don't know how that all works, but we know that angels, spirit creatures, in the book of the Revelation, are singing and praising God. Well, we will never come to absolute, infinite knowledge in heaven. You're not going to stop learning and stop growing in heaven. That's not going to happen. We know from 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. That Paul says, now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, not, not as God does, but to the full extent that glorified humans can know, even as I am fully known. Revelation 14, 13 describes the condition of those who are in heaven now as blessed. The reason they are viewed as blessed is that they rest from their labors, the scripture tells us that. When life is good here, I've been saying this since I was 27 and entered gospel ministry. When it's good here, life can be incredibly hard. It involves all manner of physical and emotional challenges. Living for Christ involves struggling, battling the world, the flesh, your flesh, and the devil. The dead are blessed not by being freed of all activity. There's going to be activity in the intermediate state and the final state. They are blessed because the drudgery, the weariness, the hardship, the painful challenges that sometimes accompany activity in a cursed world and a decaying body are gone for good. Hebrews 12.23 teaches that our souls are made perfect at death. The word means reaching fulfillment, consummation, the end point, The perfection gained immediately at death is perfection in holiness. Think about this. Imagine this. Imagine what it will be like to not have to battle to keep from sinning in thought, word, and deed. Imagine not having to feel failure, conviction, to have to confess and repent the same sin over and over again. You beat it down like whack-a-mole. Keeps coming back. What a relief to have all of that gone. What joy. Think of life lived where you and everyone else always only acts and thinks like Jesus, your Savior. Much of the joy of heaven comes because of what is not a part of it. There's no aging, no disease, no physical pain, no death, no dying. No separation, no funerals, no emotional pain, false accusations, lies, thefts, threats, pettiness, anger. Scarcity of time, unlimited time to do what you want. Nothing to maintain, grease, oil, insure, replace. No struggles in earning a living. No layoffs, no terminations. Add to that list whatever it is that makes life hard for you in the here and now Everything that you fear in the here and now, in this tent that's falling apart, put it all on that list. When you get to heaven, oh, that's gone. Death and life that follows is a totally new experience for us. And I think most people are regularly apprehensive and anxious, even fearful about the unknowns of totally new experiences. A way to mitigate our apprehension with regard to death is to preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel to ourselves. To remember that in death, we're in the hands of a sovereign God who loved us so much that he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all when we were viewed as rebels and sinners against Him? Will the God who loved us that much, when we were viewed as rebels and wicked sinners, not provide a life for us at death, now that we're His children, that is far better than anything we could ever experience here? I was thinking between services, you know, I could be preaching my own funeral sermon. I mean, you know, I'm of the age. Uh, and that's what, that's what helps me, is to think about heaven in that way. A really great theologian, not Madonna, Princeton professor Charles Hodge, old dead guy, 1797 to 1878, a prince of theologians, wrote, it is important when we come to die that we have nothing to do but to die. Think about that. It's important when we come to die that we have nothing to do but to die. Is that where you are on the last Sunday of 2021? As you review your life lived for the Lord in 2021, are there changes that you need to make in this service, maybe this afternoon, in the days ahead, as this year winds down? Are there changes you need to make with the strength that God's Spirit gives those who ask, do you need to do these in order to be ready for the appointment that you could very well keep in 2022? You know, I buried a woman last Saturday, and five weeks before, she was in absolutely good health, found out she had pancreatic cancer. They said she'd be gone in a month. She was gone in a month and a day. That could be you. Are there some sins that need to be confessed and turned from? Are there some gifts, some time, some money that need to be invested in the only kingdom that lasts forever in 2022 that were withheld from Jesus' use in 2021? As we pray, and over the next few days, as I said, let's consider these things and prepare for our appointment so that when the time comes to die, we don't have anything to do but die. There might be some relationships that you need to fix. You need to do that. Now, I want to tell you something. If you're here and you're not a believer, the moment your EGG flatlines, you will be in the torments of hell. Luke sixteen twenty two. there's just no doubt about it. You're going to be in punishment. You will be there until the resurrection when your body will be raised to join your soul And you're going to stand in judgment, and every sin you ever committed, a huge pile of sin, is going to be there. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're going to pay for all eternity for all of those sins, from the smallest to the largest, and the whole composite. You will be found guilty, you will be charged, you will be condemned, you will suffer forever Jesus is your only hope. You need to accept him now. Don't put it off as we pray. Ask him to come into your life. Tell him you want him to be your Savior and your Lord. Father, thank you for the attention of your people to something that is not the most pleasant thing that could have been preached on this last Sunday of the year. But, Father... uh, Pastors need to prepare their people for what's inevitable for the appointment. And so, Father, I just pray that if there is someone here that right now they would say to you in a prayer of faith, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do to undo the sins I've committed. The stain is one that will never come out except for Jesus' blood and righteousness. Father, I pray that they would ask Christ to come into their hearts and to save them and change them and to go to someone here, maybe me or someone else, and and find out what the next steps might be for growing in their faith as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray when the time of our death comes that we'll remember these things that to depart and to be with you is far better than anything we could enjoy here, and that you love us. Everything comes through your hand of love. And Father, you planned everything, including the days of our lives here and the way and the time in which we go home. Help us to trust, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.